Step. I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And I am here to introduce you to the bi-weekly sojourn of our attempt to cover all of the instances in history where we effed up. What are we talking about today, Cody? Well, as I alluded to last time, we're talking about something that actually took place within our lifetimes. So you and I remember this. Well, you've well, given well, me a lot we, of credit. We, we had the opportunity to remember this. <laughs> uh, uh, it occurred, and we could have potentially seen it on the news. Yes. Okay. Yeah, so we're talking about uh, the aftermath, uh, one particular instance in the aftermath, of the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Wow, okay. Yes. So another uh, instance of high amounts of bloodshed. Great. Yes. Sweet. We can't yep. just make it all fun and butterflies, huh? Nope. History's not all fun and games, Teresa. Well, there's a lot of butterflies in history. I'm just saying, maybe we could get a little bit more butterflies, a little bit less bloodshed. Don't, well, don't worry about it. I mean, I, I can't we some... all just get along? I wish, but no, we can't. <laughs> okay. So, as always, a little bit of context. Context. My uh, favorite part. Yes. Uh, since the lead-up to the Persian Gulf War in 1990 and 91, the United States took a leading role in a coalition of nations that opposed the regime of Iraq's dictator, Saddam Hussein. Oh, boy. Of Arrested Development fame. Oh, boy. And South Park fame. Okay. Uh, while the U.S. had supported Hussein's regime during the 1980s, when Iraq was fighting a war with Iran, the U.S. now viewed Hussein as a dangerous and destabilizing force in the Middle East. Throughout the 1990s, the CIA covertly supported Iraqi rebel groups, and regime change became regime change in Iraq became official U.S. policy in 1998. Oh, your favorite thing? Yes, regime, regime change. change. Covert regime change because it's always worked out so well. Oh yeah, I mean it's the it's the like number one. Iran uh, and Honduras and Cuba and Chile. It's always worked out so well. It's the number one most stable way to replace governments. Yes, exactly. And leadership. You overthrow the old regime and sprinkle a little democracy and freedom. And you said that was 1998 or 1988? Yes, 1998. Okay, so I have a sidebar. Uh, so... My grandma, she moved several times when I was a kid When uh, before she died when I was 16 in 2006. When we were cleaning out her uh, trailer one time before she moved in with my uncle, um, we had to get rid of all of her books. And she had, like, she was a prolific reader. Um, she was on that, like, uh, bookmobile situation where they would bring you paper bags full of books to read because you're old and that's all you have to do. She was a prolific reader. But within these books were several propaganda paperbacks about removing Saddam Hussein from Iraq. It was so weird because as far as I know, like my grandmother did have a lot of history books, but it was mostly like kind of fluffy history, like hmm. uh, biographies of women and things like that, like historical figures. Um, but these were like, on the front, they would have, like, nuclear blasts with, like, Saddam Hussein's face superimposed over it. It was, oh, like, yeah. the final solution. Like, like fear-mongering like type of stuff. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, they wanted to gin up, you know, hey, you know, public support for, like, hey, you know, we should take this guy out at some point. It was very weird, though. Yeah. Uh, like, and granted, I don't typically search through pulp paperbacks like that and look for ones that are 
you know, have nuclear blasts on the front. So maybe that's still very much a genre of fiction or genre of nonfiction, quote unquote, that's still a thing. But that's what I remember most about (laughs) removing all of the books out of her house was like seeing those propaganda machine books about removing Saddam Hussein. Yeah. It's very strange. But after the Gulf War, uh, weapons inspectors on the, uh, under the auspices of the United Nations have been ordered into the country to ensure that Hussein complied with coalition terms that he dismantle all weapons of mass destruction. WMDs, baby. Oh, yeah. While not fully cooperative by any means. <laughs> okay. Hussein did not have, like, massive stockpiles of chemical weapons, as would later be claimed by the United States. Um, sounds like he's got... Massive stockpiles of these weapons, Cody. I mean, if if the front of the covers of these books are to be believed, well, well, those are nuclear weapons, not chemical weapons. Well, either way, <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and he had you know used chemical weapons in the past, but it wasn't like he had, you know, entire arsenals of them. So okay. After the terrorist attacks on the U.S. on September 11, two thousand one, this fact would largely be ignored. U.S. President George W. Bush began linking Hussein's regime with al-Qaeda, the terrorist group responsible for 9-11, as well as claiming that Iraq was a clear and present danger to global security in general, and the U.S. in particular. Are we going to come to whether or not Saddam Hussein had anything to do with al-Qaeda? No. Because, I mean, he he didn't. Okay, that, but, that's mean, but, basically what my question was. I wasn't yeah. sure if you were going to loop back around to that. But... No. Like, he may have, like, supported them in... And you know, in his heart, so to speak. But <laughs> he supported them in his heart. Um, uh, honestly, for me, I'm just going to say this really quick: my understanding of the war in Iraq and our invasion of Iraq and later Afghanistan is honestly pretty nebulous because it's very hard to absorb all of the information as a major historical event is happening and be able to disseminate it and like know what actually happened. Yeah, and not get swept up in. The pop, the propaganda for it exactly. Uh, yeah, which is why you know, the day we're recording this, yeah, is the 20th anniversary of when we're gonna like our F up that we're gonna talk about. I see. So I mean, this won't come out for uh, till next week, I think, the, right. the 30th of May. But it'll be a little like 20 years in a week. But the day we're recording this is the 20 year window, so we can talk about this. Um, and the reason why I said that is because I didn't think that Saddam Hussein had anything to do with it directly. No. I didn't think there was any like collusion that no. we were able to prove. Um, but once again, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but Iraq was included in George W. Bush's infamous axis of evil. Axis Iran, of- Iraq, and North Korea. So bad. So, yeah. I mean, still bad, but not an axis. <laughs> no. Uh, Despite questionable evidence of the ongoing war in Afghanistan and the lukewarm support from allies, the U.S. pushed ahead with invasion plans. Like you do. In October 2002, Congress, with bipartisan support in the House and the Senate, including from our current president, uh, passed the authorization for the use of military force. And in March 2003, a U.S.-led coalition invaded Iraq. Uh, The country fell quickly, with Hussein going into hiding, and President Bush declaring mission accomplished, a now infamous speech from the deck of an aircraft carrier on May 1st, 2003. Wow. You probably remember the mission accomplished speech. But, I uh, do remember that. Here's an image of, like, kind of the Iraq and, like, kind of the battle plan for it. Like, we all just, bases in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia just kind of invade from the south and go north. And up here, like, supporting the Kurds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then there is Bush on the deck of the aircraft mission carrier giving a speech. 
Imagine ordering that banner ahead of time. The banner wonder, that they had hung on the aircraft carrier. I wonder where that banner is now. I wonder who has that banner. Ooh, that's a great question. Yeah, it, it, like whoever has it, it should probably go... In a museum? Like the Pre- George A. Bush Presidential Library Museum. It does um, exist, so it should probably go there. Is that uh, <laughs> aircraft carrier still in service? Do you know? The Abraham Lincoln, yeah. Yeah, it's still in service. It's probably on the Abraham Lincoln. I bet you there were signatures. Like I, I bet, bet you the, he signed it. You know what? I, you know, probably uh, probably a whole bunch of Navy admirals probably did sign it. it probably you know it, because it's probably nobody wants it or see, wants to see it anymore. It's probably <laughs> stashed in some like basement back room of the of the Pentagon. <laughs> Is that where they keep all of their random garbage? Yeah, or it's in Area Fifty One with the aliens. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but yeah, like like I remember watching that on TV. And it was such a, just, like, like, they literally had Bush, who had been in the Texas Air National Guard, whether he actually showed up for duty or not, that's a whole nother story, but he'd been in the Texas Air National Guard, so they're like, it would be awesome, let's have him fly in as, like, the pilot on one of the helicopters, it'd be so cool, and he flew in, and, you know, it was the first time they've ever, like, ever had a craft-designated Navy One, because it was an aircraft that he was on, he was in the flight suit, and his little name said President Bush, and oh, it was cool and raw patriotism, yeah. And then he gave the speech, yeah, we win, yeah, America, yeah. Wow, you really got wrapped up in that, I huh? I did, yeah. Yeah, you went on a roll with that. I did. Uh, quick note, the banner is actually at the uh, Bush Library. It uh, is? But, but it is not on display. Oh, it was come in the on. It was in the National Archives, and then they transferred it to, in, in 2010, it was transferred from the National Archives to the collection of the George W. Bush Presiden- Presidential Center, but it is not currently on display. They probably got it. They probably asked for it so like nobody else would get it and display it and make fun of them. Yeah, they they were. I mean, it was up in the air whether or not they were going to display it, but it's in their archives. Oh man! So it's there, collecting dust somewhere. Oh man! But throw that thing up, like, well, yeah, maybe, maybe after he dies, they can put it up there, like, mission accomplished. Uh, wow! <laughs> we should go to the presidential library and see if we can't sneak into a back room and find I it. I think it's in Texas. It's in. Uh, I know it's on the campus of like I think the campus of, like Southern Methodist in Texas. I don't know what that I think. is. So Methodist University. Uh, so yeah, so let, let's let's make a field yes. trip there. It's near Dallas. I don't know anybody in Dallas. I don't either. But it's probably a good thing because nobody no, nobody knows us. How close is Dallas to Houston? I don't know. Okay. Anyway, we're getting way off topic here. But uh, <laughs> so after this speech, you know, you know, the U.S. did not simply invade Iraq to topple Hussein and leave. No, no. The Bush administration intended to rebuild Iraq as a U.S.-style democracy. Like you do? Yep. To this end, on May 16th, 2003, the Coalition Provisional Authority was established. Its mandate was to rule Iraq until a permanent government could be established. To lead this occupational government, Bush turned to a man, and our effer-upper for today, Jerry Brimmer. And there's a picture of him. Jerry Brimmer or Rimmer? Brimmer. B-R-E-M-E-R. Brimmer. Okay. Got it. So. Jerry. Looks like your typical mid-2000s neoconservative bureaucrat. Exactly. Is he wearing a red tie? Yes. That's what I thought. Yep. Yep. And a pinstripe suit. Yep. Ooh, that's a very early 2000s decision. Yep. I'm watching Better Call Saul and he actually buys a pinstripe suit. (laughs) You don't see that anymore. Yeah. 
Most of the time, people don't wear that. Yeah, unless you're like a villain like Roger Stone or something. Or a linen suit, which don't do that. If no. you wear a linen suit, you no. will be excoriated yep. in the media. Yep. God, do you remember when Obama wore that white, or that, that, that tan suit? That's what I'm specifically oh, okay, talking okay. about. Okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Like, oh my it's a God. a linen suit. It's like, and everybody lost tore their, him up. Lost their crap. It's like, oh my God, why? Has anybody hunted up pictures of Jill Biden and when she's grocery shopping or wearing jeans and a t-shirt and then said that she's like the worst and so ugly? I'm probably somewhere. Because I was like all over when it came to Michelle uh, Michelle Obama. Oh, that yeah. picture of her in the white t-shirt and the jeans. People were like, Man. that's not becoming of a first lady. Man, what people, happened people, to Jacqueline Kennedy? People are going to be pissed off if I ever become president because you know, you know my attire. You'll never get elected. T-shirt people, and gym shorts. People will say that that like you would go on tour like that. Like, like literally like literally the other day, um, a group of five senators and four. Of the, OK, they did something. Four of them were in suits and one of them was the guy from pennsylvania john fetterman mm-hmm. like the big like the six foot seven bald guy uh-huh. he came out in the like jorts and a hoodie <laughs> and i'm like that's the vibe i would bring to the u.s senate jorts no well not specifically that but like you know t-shirt and like track pants or something that's that's uh, that's an even lower lower level than a hoodie and jorts no it is not are you kidding me no i no jorts are worse anyway we're, I'm rolling we're, we're even so further hard. off topic than we were before. <laughs> you you took us so, down this path. L. Paul Brimmer the Third, yikes, was born on September 30th, 1941, in Hartford, Connecticut. He was nicknamed Jerry because his favorite saint was Saint Jerome. Yeah. Wow, what a lame reason for a nickname. I mean, you, you saw a picture of the guy. Yeah, that's true. Kind of lame, so. My favorite scene is St. Jerome. He graduated from Yale in 1963 and Harvard in 1966. Harvard. Harvard. Well, did you know that Roger Corman graduated from Stanford? So, just saying. I mean, Conan O'Brien graduated from Harvard. Just, th- so, I'm just yeah. saying, like, we, we could throw out our yeah. college degrees all day. Yeah. Stanford. I mean. uh, he joined the Foreign Service in 1966, serving in various roles over the next 20-plus years, including Oof. a stint as ambassador to the Netherlands, because that sounds like a tough job. It's probably very cushy. Oh, yeah. Like, like the... Right, ambassadorship is, like, pretty cushy, depending well, on where you're Yeah, stationed. and you get paid differently, depending on, like, if it's cushy like that, or if you're, like, you know, the ambassador to the Vatican. Right. But like if you if you're like the bat ambassador to Sudan, you get like hazard pay. You get like a higher salary and like hazard pay and stuff. Because well, plus you have to live there, right? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. have to live there. I mean, Full you time. can. I'm sure in some places you live on the embassy grounds, right? But um, but yeah, like you depending on like where like I think there's like three categories. Uh huh. Um, and you get paid depending on which one it is mm-hmm. and that type of thing. So, um. But he retired from the Foreign Service in 1989 and joined the private sector. Uh, he serves in various bland corporate roles throughout the 90s. Uh, before he is appointed by President Bush as the administrator of the CPA in May 2003. Bremer's position was, quote, the most powerful foreign post held by an American since General Douglas MacArthur in Japan, end quote, after World War II. Basically, Douglas MacArthur was... The occupation leader after we've defeated Japan. Right. He basically just ruled Japan. 
Right. Yeah. So he's basic. So, um, for Bremer, the role allowed him to rule by decree. He was basically the American dictator of Iraq. E. And I heard I heard this on another podcast, uh, called Blowback. It's definitely it's pretty good. I I definitely recommend it. I guess a lot of the media they would refer to him as the viceroy. Which is oh, which is boy. which is a problematic term in and of itself because the colonial yes um, yeah. implications of it yeah <laughs> but they they speculated that the term viceroy was kind of like in the public consciousness because of a certain couple of movies that had come out recently featuring a viceroy the prequels the Star Wars prequels the oh. bad guy to one of the bad guys to famous was vi- was the viceroy of the trade federation oh okay the, uh, the, that the, seems the, very niche the asian frog dudes that's a spe- very sp- with the weird hats yeah okay like newt yeah. gunray yeah newt gunray okay yeah um i oh, no, 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 set it off on the boot. i didn't know that they were viceroys but yeah. i understand that um that's just a very specific thing so basically yeah, those... they were like underhanded calling him a terrible Awful. Yeah, corporate shill. Yeah, corporate shill. Yeah. Yeah, which is just like, it's just because I'm like, oh, I got, I got it. This reminded me of Phantom Menace, and I don't like being reminded of Phantom Menace. Pawn uh, racer scene, though. Yeah, but taxation of trade routes. You say that all the time, but I recently, I'm way more recently watched that movie than you did, and it's really not that bad. Uh, uh, sorry? What? You do that every time, and it does not get any funnier. Yeah. That Senate scene is... Oh God, it's so, really it's not so, that it's, bad. It's so boring. You you say that, and it doesn't really last that long. It's, it's, it feels like it lasts that long. You so have boring. made it that way in your mind. It's so boring. It's so it, doesn't bar, it doesn't make anybody else bored. I'm sure it made plenty of other people just no. as bored as me. Anyway, we're getting even further, further off topic. Than you we brought it up. Earlier. Anyway, <laughs> on May 16, 2003... Viceroy Brimmer issued the first of his decrees, CPA Order Number One, <laughs> Certified Accountant, Certified Public <laughs> yeah. Accountant Order One, <laughs> uh, Coalition Provisional Authority Order Number One, okay. which banned Hussein's Ba'ath Party and barred any member from holding any sort of government position, including teachers, doctors, and bureaucrats. So now, so if you're a member of that party, then you could not hold any sort of government position. Okay, so which. On the face of it, makes sense. Because mm-hmm. that but, party is bad. Quote yeah, because that was the one party, like Sudan, like Hussein ruled the like one party rule, right? That type of thing. So they were saying like, okay, if you're yeah, a member it, of that party, it, you kind of like kind of like Nazis after World War II. Yeah. On the face of it, it's fine. But while this did prevent Hussein loyalists from remaining in any new Iraqi government, it did not effectively take into account that many joined out of necessity. Right. For right. example, a student could only be accepted into a university under Hussein's rule by joining the party. It would be like right now if they were like, okay, any men who are part of the selective service program can no longer uh, get a home loan. And then you're like, okay, well, I had to enroll for selective service if I wanted to get grants for college yeah. in the United States. Exactly. So I had to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So they were forced. Okay. Yep. Uh, while there was an appeals process, it was subjective, cumbersome, and inefficient. Of course, because this is bureaucracy, yes. so why wouldn't it be? And the bureaucracy of an occupying power. Exactly. This exactly. effectively put thousands of experienced Iraqis out of work, mostly in the educated sectors of society. Also, the other part of bureaucracy in for the occupying power is that 
the efficiency of it is not their top priority. Exactly. So they're going to immediately be like, oh, this is cumbersome and inefficient and it's going to take a lot more time and money yeah. and it's going to put people out of jobs. We don't care. Yeah, and not taking into account that like a lot of the doctors are in the hospitals, the teachers at schools and stuff, they work directly for the Iraqi government. Exactly. Like this was a dictatorship. The government was omnipresent. Right. So you ju- so now you have a lot of kids aren't being educated. You have a lot of qualified doctors who aren't able to practice a profession. And they're poor. They they don't have money. They yeah, have no income. Because the country was basically just destroyed. Right. The economy is gone. Yeah. So but that was not our F up. Our F up was in a lot of ways a lot worse. Similar but worse. The more consequential decree was order number two, issued by Bremer on May twenty third, two thousand three. Exactly. exactly 20 years ago to the day that we're recording this. Okay. Order number two completely dissolved the Iraqi military, security, and intelligence services. Oh my God. Which again, on the face of it, like we're if you don't like, think about yeah. it at all, it makes sense. Immediately before the invasion, Iraq had a military force of approximately 660,000 active duty personnel. Before the invasion, the U.S. Department of Defense planned to dissolve the Republican Guard, which is like the most like die-hard Hussein loyalist part of the military. Which, which okay, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe lock those guys up, replace the higher command staff, and engage the rank and file soldiers in rebuilding the country. Mm-hmm. So put them to work re- redoing the roads, redoing the buildings. Makes sense. What was that like? CCC program, and not uh, exactly the Civilian same. Conservation Corps. Yeah, similar to that. Like putting them to work rebuilding yeah. infrastructure. Yeah, almost like a blend of that and the Army Corps of Engineers. Yeah, yeah. So, so repurposing people who are skilled tradesmen into yeah. doing something that reinvests in the country. Yes, that which is what they were assuming that they were going to do. Yeah. Okay. Um, but this like completely, like everybody in the military. Everybody in the police, which yeah, is problematic for local problems. Yeah, because you're. I could have phrased that sentence better, but you're you're essentially kind of like making a large group of people yeah. who have ready access to weapons very angry. Well, also, it's like you're assuming that your occupation forces are going to be enough to just replace, like, especially, like, local, like, okay, there's not necessarily a need for the Iraqi military right now. Right. But you're assuming that your occupation forces are also going to serve as the police officers. Right. And the intelligence services, uh... In a destroyed country, no less. Yes. In a country that is prone to, like, right now, it is absolutely decimated. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, of course... Um, DOD plan had plans for them. Uh, however, upon arriving in Iraq, Bremer decided to decided to dissolve the Iraqi military wholesale. His reasoning was that the Iraqi military was already effectively dissolved, as many units deserted as the invasion carried on, and it was unlikely that they would return to their units under American command. Which he's assuming this. Mm-hmm. Because there were some conscripts who were like, who probably, I mean, certainly, there are certainly people who would not return to their barracks or return to their units or whatever. But he's also assuming that they have something to go back to and can find gainful employment. Right, exactly. Yeah. In, in a destroyed country. Yes. In the years since, a great deal of finger pointing has taken place regarding the formulation of the order. 
Bremer maintains that the Bush administration was made aware of his plans prior to the promulgation of Order Number 2, and that he does not remember who exactly came up with the idea. Mm -hmm. Many in the administration, including President Bush himself, have claimed ignorance of Bremer's plan. Uh, Bush even remarked afterwards that he thought the plan was to keep the military intact. Oh my god. And according to journalist Bob Woodward, who, you know, Watergate probably can be counted on as a reliable source. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm being serious. Like, he's one right. of the people who broke Watergate, so. Yeah. Uh, Bremer did not consult with DOD or other administration officials outside of a lawyer at the National Security Council to proofread the legalese of the order. Uh, so it appears that Bremer acted on his own with input only from close advisors. Oh, boy. Again, cool. American dictator of Iraq. So. Sweet. Uh, and this is a direct quote from Brimmer. Quote, I think the decision not to recall Saddam's army from a political point of view is the single most important decision that we made, end quote. Which, he's not wrong that it was the most important decision. Noted he didn't say it was a good decision. Right, exactly. He didn't say it was like, oh, this had long-lasting great effects. Yep. It was just important. Significant. Yeah. One might say. However, with order number two, over half a million Iraqis with weapons and fighting experience were now out of a job. Exactly. The complete collapse of the Hussein regime and the inability of the CPA to fill the power vacuum led to anarchy and loss of social services in many areas, and the now ex-soldiers, many of whom just kept their weapons, yeah, began to fall in with local leaders opposed to the occupation. The CPA offered former soldiers a severance check, but it was wholly insufficient for many. Numerous insurgent groups formed, often around ex-Both Party members and out-of-work soldiers. Yep. The now porous border, because, again, now the occupation force has to be the Border Patrol. The now porous border led to an additional influx of foreign fighters opposed to the U.S. Because, again, Iran is right next door. Yep. So... Over the next decade, a near-constant insurgency against first the CPA, then the new Iraqi government, would lead to widespread instability, including a full-scale civil war in 2006-2008. The instability and weakness of the Iraqi government, combined with the 2011 withdrawal of coalition forces, paved the way for ISIS to storm through the, much of the country in 2013. Many of the ISIS fighters were ex-Iraqi military, radicalized by years of conflict. Yep. ISIS was largely defeated in Iraq in 2017, but low-intensity conflict persists to this day. Since the initial invasion in March 2003, approximately 300,000 people have been killed and 9.2 million displaced. This is what happens when you put ideals over practicality. Yep. You can't eat the idea of democracy and freedom. You can't rebuild someone's home and livelihood with promises of protection and removal of a dictatorship and without also completely restructuring and investing a lot yeah. of time, money, and people it, it, into a country. It's kind of the old age-old question, like, you know, it's all well and good to say, oh, I have a say in my government, but can you put food on the table? Exactly. Like, you know, is is your family eating this day, 
is living under an authoritarian worth the price? Yes, exactly. So that is that age old question. And that's a that's a terrible place to put somebody to say like yeah it's a horrible decision to make yeah saddam hussein is terrible evil man who who did terrible atrocious things to this country yeah but also there were there was some degree of order at the time (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. there was some degree of order and then granted he might decide you know your whole village might get burned next week but right But then we remove him as a leader, and we completely dissolve yeah. his military, and make it so that any part, any part of that, any part of that party yeah. is no longer allowed to be gainfully employed by the government. Yeah. Now, now, don't don't get us wrong, listeners. We are not saying things were better under Saddam, no. and we're not saying Saddam should have like Saddam should have been removed. I just through think some that means when it comes but... to regime changes, it's always like. Throw yeah. guns at the problem, and it'll be fine. Everything will just... The the biggest attitude is, like, everything will work itself out. People right. naturally want democracy. No, first, they want food on the table. Exactly. They want running water. They want infrastructure. They want, they their want ki- shelter. They want, they want their kids to be safe. Right, exactly. So, I mean, I mean you kind of see it in Ukraine now a little bit, because there there are some things that Zelensky has done that's like, that seems a little dictatory. But at the same time, it's like, well, when your country is facing an existential threat of ex- for its existence, and is that worth it? Is that worth it? The other part is uh, we keep throwing money at it in terms of defense and you yeah. know F 16s and yeah yeah uh, we're, they're they're going to start getting those now so. right they're going to start getting at least not, maybe not directly from us but from our allies so which came from us uh, initially yeah. but in any case they're getting guns and weapons and more military funding. But they're not getting infrastructure to help. Well, there is, I mean, other countries are providing humanitarian aid. There's plenty of countries who are doing that. Sure. So I'm just saying, we're trying to repel a, a dictator, essentially, yeah. an authoritarian leader, hmm. from taking over this country, which has enjoyed its freedom up until last year. When was the invasion? 2021, 2022, two, uh, enjoyed its freedom since last year and now it's finally been invaded and now they're continually uh, continuing to have to push this authoritarian leader back yeah and we're not addressing the systemic problems that are going to come from this yeah because eventually the country's going to need to rebuild right so those cities that have been you know bombed and and it's like you know like we can't keep giving them money forever right and I'm worried that once the war reaches its conclusion, because I think Ukraine will win mm-hmm. eventually. If they just hold on. Yeah. Because we did see, like re- like this past week, a rebel group inside Russia mm-hmm. to taking some... It was small, but it's like we're starting to see that like that. that that's like a bit of a crack. Right. So, but... I'm worried that eventually we will just be like, all right, well, uh, Russia was defeated. They're out of Ukraine now, so... We'll see you right. later. Yeah, that's like, we're going to have to continue to help them. There's going to be if a... if not, there's... It's going to be... It's There's a vacuum. Yes. And something so, has to fill it. And yes. that's what's happened. Like, we're using Iraq as, the, you know, an example here, but that's what ha- has happened literally every time. Yep. When we have destabilized a country with an authoritarian dictator or authoritarian power of some sort, 
and then we don't have enough people or money yeah. or time or, to... Or we make the assumption, oh, they want what we want. Right, exactly. Without allowing the... I mean, look at Afghanistan. Because the first thing... That's, per- that's probably a better example. Exactly. That's that's exactly what I was about to say. Is like Because Iraq, the- you know, it may not be entirely functioning, but it does right. have a democracy today. But the, uh, the, the very first thing that needs to happen is for your country to feel... The people with, that are within your country... To feel safe. Mm-hmm. So to know that somebody has their back and that they're protected currently and that they're going to have their needs taken care of. And then, only then, once they have that level of stabilization, are they able to finally have those discussions? Like, what do we want our infrastructure to look like? What kind of government do we feel best represents the country that we have? Which may not always be democracy. It may not always be yeah. one person, one vote. Or, or a representative democracy like what we have, it may or not like, always or be with like, like that. One leader or something, you know, right? Or... Maybe they need a maybe they need a group. I, I like Switzerland, like they don't have a single they have like a, an executive board or something. So, which I like that idea. I really like a board. <laughs> uh, I think one person is the the sole leader of a, any country, especially one as large as the United States. is It's a lot. It's yeah, a lot to ask. It's a lot for one person to handle. But anyway. Yeah. And we keep going off topic this episode. <laughs> uh, several of the other orders issued by Bremer have proven to be controversial besides one and two. Order number 12 eliminated all tariffs. So now the native Iraqi manufacturing industry, which... Can't collect tariffs? Yeah. Well, because tariffs are essentially like a way to give your own domestic production, like manufacturing production, like a, like a, like a one-up on foreign competition. Yeah, yeah. So now there's no tariffs, and so now Iraq it's going to find it harder to rebuild its manufacturing industry because now, well, we can just get cheap imports. Why would we buy Iraqi? Why would we, like why would an Iraqi buy an Iraqi item when you can get it for cheaper if it's coming from America or China or China? Yeah. So, order number seventeen, which exempted foreign contractors from Iraqi law. Okay. So, you know, your friends so you at Blackwater... you don't have... You don't friend, have to play by their rules. Your friends at Blackwater, if they go, you know, kill, kill an Iraqi, they're not going to be subject to Iraqi law. Well, yeah, because otherwise, how would Blackwater have been able to conduct their yeah, covert well, yeah. stuff if they did... If, yeah. You know, they had to abide by Iraqi law. Yeah. Which so. I'm sure has a provision against murder. Order number 39, which permitted foreign investment in and complete ownership of Iraqi assets, which allowed wealth to flow out of the country. So so everything is owned by somebody outside the country. Because, yeah, because, because uh, now Iraqi people don't have any wealth to be able to invest well, because in. Because a lot of it was owned by the state. Right, exactly. And now it's like, oh, Exxon, you can get that oil well for cheap. Wow. And wow. you can own 100% of it, so you don't have to pay crap to Iraq. Wow. So... That's some really good business practice right there. So, so like, you know, when when Trump said, why don't we go in and just take their oil? Well, Trump, we kind of did. <laughs> well, that and if we're not paying anything to Iraq for the use of their assets, how are we? How are they going to rebuild? Yep. That's a natural resource that they are fortunate to have yeah. by way of like their geography. Of yeah. Yeah. And so. we're just like, no, we own that now. Yep. So not only do we own a part of your land, we're also not going to pay you for its use. Yeah. And so that cash crop that you were sitting on for all this time, 
that you were able to make profit off of. No, nope. So n- rebuilding country that's destroyed? No thanks. You're not going to be able to do that now. And order number 49, which cut the corporate tax rate from 40% to 15%. Yeah, because lowering tax rates always works. Especially for the corporations. Corporate tax rates should always be lower. Mm. Hope you can hear the sarcasm in my voice. Oh, yes. Uh, That that encourages free trade. Capitalism. The CPA was dissolved (laughs) in June 2004, and power handed over to an Iraqi interim government. Bremer left Iraq and returned to the U.S. that day. Yeah. During Bremer's tenure... Billions of dollars in aid were found to have been mismanaged. Oh, surprise. One infamous instance was a flight of $12 billion in U.S. currency being flown into the country. Of that, over $8 billion is unaccounted for. About $1.6 billion of it turned up in a Lebanese basement years later. What? Because a lot of times... Basically, Bremer was basically just given $12 billion to just hand out to local Iraqis to be like, hey, just uh, you, you're a local leader. Maintain control of that area. With this U.S. And of course, dollar. <laughs> and of course, what did they go use it for? They bought weapons with it. Yeah, of course. Wow. What did you think they were going to do with it, Jerry? St. Jerome. Uh, Bremer's departure was suspiciously timed. as the auditing firm KPMG was in the midst of an audit of the Iraqi Development Fund. Bremer and his staff left two days before the scheduled handover. So it was originally supposed to be like June 30th, and they left on June 28th. Like, all right, here you go. (laughs) Wow. Without turning over their internal accounting documents, leaving KPMG unable to perform a thorough and accurate audit. Hmm. Weird. Hmm. Hmm. I uh, I won't say too much about it, but uh, yeah, because he's still alive, he might get us for libel. <laughs> no, I was going to say uh, being um adjacent to that industry. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, that is a gigantic problem. Yeah, and I can't believe I'm about to quote and agree with this man. Is it Bush? Nope. Rumsfeld. Nope. Colin Powell. Newt Gingrich has said Bremer was, quote, the largest single disaster in American foreign policy in modern times, end quote. It's like, yeah, Newton, I, I, I would be tempted to agree with you on that one. (laughs) I don't know when he said that, so I don't know if that was, uh, I just saw that quote, I didn't see what was, like, when he said it, it might have been, I don't know if it was contemporary or not, but. Um, I mean, yeah, maybe some things from, from, uh, from the Donald might be, uh, might give that a run for its money. But yeah, this is definitely a major F up. So, Bremer was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by George W. Bush in December 2004, our nation's highest civilian honor. Oh my God. And like Bush, Bremer has taken up painting in his retirement and is largely unapologetic for his role in Iraq. Do you think that um between Bremer and George W. Bush that maybe they had like their brain scrambled X-Files style and that's why they like to paint now? I I, I don't know. The aliens did like some ray gun stuff or they had like uh I don't think this is a spoiler f- for Barry but uh some James Moss style like 
<laughs> crazy yeah. stuff happened to their no, brains maybe. and so now they're like we like to paint now i don't and they're know they're like hey can you can you talk about your career during the invasion of iraq and the occupation of iraq And they're like we like to paint now <laughs> that's it that's all i can say oh sources used for this uh michael gordon uh, an article uh on the faithful choice on iraq army bypass debate from the new york times from 2008 Philip Gordon, Losing the Long Game from 2020. Uh, Ed Harriman's article from The Guardian from 2005. Uh, so, Mr. Brimmer, where did all the money go? John Robertson's Iraq, A History from 2015. Bob Woodward's State of Denial, Bush at War Part 3 from 2006. And Brimmer's own autobiography, My Year in Iraq, The Struggle to Build a Future of Hope from 2006. How much money did he make off of that? I don't know, and I don't really care. <laughs> $1.6 billion in a Lebanese basement worth. Uh, the podcast I'm going to recommend for this week, uh, not really related to what we talked about in terms of the history of it, but kind of related geographically. Uh, history in the Bible. Oh, okay. Uh, covers like a lot of the historical events or you know, kind of like gives context to some of the things mentioned in the Bible, like did this happen, did this not happen? Um, they're, it's kind of wrapping up right now. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think they're, the host is talking about like, you know, post destruction of the second temple period mm -hmm. in Judaism and Christianity. So it's, it's kind of wrapping up a little bit. Um, cause I think the only book left to talk about is revelations, but, um, so, but yeah, I, I definitely go check it out. Uh, three seasons of it. So pretty good. Pretty solid. Has my, uh, seal of approval. Awesome. Uh well what are we talking about next next week or next time? Um also also something that technic well well no or did it. No. Something that happened immediately before our lifetimes. The fall of the Berlin um, Wall. Yes. <laughs> I guessed it. You did guess. I was like, Wait, she guessed it. What? <laughs> I mean took I was like forty I was, some episodes, right? I think by the definitions of the state of Texas I was alive at that point, but because um, I don't think I could have been aborted then, but Oh, I was, God. <laughs> my mother was pregnant with me at the time, oh my so God. you were not, but, uh, okay. but yeah, so talk about a, a little flub at a press conference that kind of led to, uh, literally kind of led to the dominoes falling a little bit, so. Cool. So yeah, follow the Berlin Wall. Wow, nailed it. You it only did. took like over 35 episodes for me to be <laughs> able to guess one time. Yeah, and guess correctly, yep. Awesome. Please be sure to check out our other projects, The Drunken Pawn, where we play board games and drink on YouTube, uh, Attack of the Final Girls, my sister podcast project with my lovely pod wife, Juliet, where we talk about horror movies. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WeEffedUp, no spaces. Be sure to rate and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And this is We, we Effed Up. up.